Good morning. So here's the thing. God is good. And here's the truth. The devil is trying his best to destroy you. You are involved in a great war. We talked about it last week. There is a war in heaven and on earth between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And whether you like it or not, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, you've been drafted. And we're going to see the war as it takes place in heaven. In the book of Revelation in chapter 12 and in verse 7, we learn that there is war in heaven. And, and the language in the tense says there was war in heaven. Because we're looking at it from the perspective of John receiving a vision about the last days. So he's seeing things acted out in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. But these events haven't really taken place yet. Or have they? You see, in heaven there is really no time. So I suspect that the war in heaven has been waging since the very rebellion that Bill shared from the scripture in Isaiah. The very rebellion of Satan against God. So as we pray this morning, we have to stop and ask ourselves a very important question. Which side are we on? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us an opportunity to seek you in your word and to hear from you in your word. This morning, as we talk about the battle that exists, the battle between good and evil, the the battle between right and wrong, between God and the devil, and the forces of wickedness in high places, Lord, may we come to terms with the reality that now is the time, the acceptable day, to commit our hearts to serving you, obeying your word, and living our lives for you, loving you with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. May we commit and make that choice here and now in our hearts so that we may stand with you in the last days and not against you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a a battle. There's a side. And what we see in chapter 12 in the first part of this verse We learn in verse 7 that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. Can I hear an amen? Amen. He was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. Now, we're seeing the culmination, the, 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 the moment that, uh, 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 that the war is really won in heaven. Not on earth, not yet, but we're seeing it won in heaven. And battles are won in heaven before they're won on earth. That's just the way it goes. And as we look at this description here, it's easy to think that, that this took place eons ago. And I think the answer is yes. And you could also look at it and say, well, isn't this something that's going to take place in the future? And you could say, yes. The the truth of the matter is, this is a battle that wages today and has waged for eternity. 
for eternities in the past, but there will come a point in our future, from our perspective, that this battle will be won. Now, as we consider Michael, it's kind of fun to do this, to look at what the Bible says about Michael the archangel, whose name means who is like God. Imagine the chief angel, his name means who is like God. Who is like God? Notice his name doesn't even point to himself. His name, who is like God, implies he's not about himself. He's not about looking into, oh, I'm the top angel. There was an angel, a cherub, that thought that way. And we don't know what his name was. Some people say Lucifer. That's just a description. That's, that's an adjective, really. We don't really know. He's called Satan, the devil, the serpent, the dragon. His name, if I knew it, somebody told me I wouldn't whisper it. I wouldn't even say it. But there was an angel perhaps of a higher rank, we believe, than even Michael. But Michael is an angel who's loyal to God and to his throne. And he's true to God. And his name means who is like God. And of course, the answer is rhetorical. No one is like God. And yet, isn't it interesting that the devil thinks he could be God? So here you have two opposing angels. You have one who wants to be God, who is like God. Satan would say, I am like God. But Michael the archangel says, who is like God? And of course, the answer is nobody. He's perhaps the greatest of all God's angels at this point. He's the great prince of Israel who protects God's people, according to Daniel. He's, he's an archangel, the only one specifically mentioned, powerful enough to rebuke the devil. He had helped Gabriel in the book of Daniel while he was detained with the king of Persia. And the king of Persia was an actual person, but there was a, a, a fallen angel called the prince of Persia influencing or seeking to influence Persia. And he even assisted in protecting the king of Persia from the prince of Persia's influence in the book of Daniel, which we studied some time ago. And now we learn he will arise at the time of the end. Daniel tells us this as well. To deliver Israel through a time of great distress. Daniel tells us that and we actually start to see that played out in real time in the book of Revelation. The time of the end. The time of the end. Let me give you a few terms that will help you understand what we're talking about. The time of the end is a seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation. But there's a time of wrath as well. And the time of wrath is the last three and a half years of the time of the end. And that's what we're talking about here in this section of this book in chapter 12. It's a time of unprecedented distress for Israel. It's going to last three and a half years. And it will be completed, as Daniel tells us, when the power of Israel has finally been broken. That is, do you remember when Jacob, who was later renamed to Israel, wrestled with God? Penuel, the time where he wrestled with God. And his power was finally broken. He was broken and he submitted to God. And so his name was changed from Jacob, which means surplanter or heel catcher, to Israel, which means a prince of God or one who's governed by God. And that is exactly what will one day happen to the nation of Israel. Through this time of great distress, we call the time of wrath which is the time of God's wrath on the earth, not God's wrath on Israel. God's going to preserve Israel, as we saw last week and we'll see again in today's study, for three and a half years. But isn't it interesting, during this time of tribulation, Israel is saved. 
Paul tells us all Israel will be saved. That is true, Israel will be saved. So God's plan in trials and tribulation is to bring salvation to his chosen people. But as we go through today in the church, as we go through trials and tribulations, could it be, could it just be that God is working all things together for good? Can I hear an amen? For the good of those who are called and chosen? You see, I've learned to look at tribulation differently. I used to look at it as a bummer. and like The goal was just to get all tribulation and trials out of my life. And that when I was holy enough and prayerful enough that one day my life would be perfect. I haven't gotten there yet because it's never going to happen. Trials and tribulations are actually working for us. They develop perseverance and patience in my character, but they also draw me and you, all of us, closer to God. And so what is it that will finally break the power, if you will, or the will of Israel? Tribulation, the great tribulation. So it's not just a time of wrath being poured out on the world that rejects Christ. It's a time of God reaching his chosen people, Israel. So it's not all bad news. But certainly there's enough bad news in this. That is for the world and those that reject Christ. But here's Michael, whose mission seems to be to protect the people of God. And we now see him in heaven battling the devil and his angels. We talked last week about how the devil has fallen angels. It says that the dragon who represents Satan, in his, his tail sort of drags, as it says here back in verse 4 of this chapter, it says that the, a third, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, stars referring to angels, and flung them to the earth. So there is a rebellion in heaven. This is clear. We're, this is pretty obvious. There's a rebellion on earth, but this rebellion in heaven was what started it all. Now, Michael and his angels, I'm glad to say, we see here, will one day defeat, completely defeat the dragon and his angels. They're going to lose their place in heaven, but strangely enough, they still have it from our perspective. They still have that place. As we said, a third of the angels in heaven serve Satan, and he has sent them to influence the earth, and we can see that they're getting the job done. You only need to read the newspaper to learn that The spiritual forces of wickedness in high places, in high places still to this moment, are getting the job done. They're influencing people in ways that we would have never imagined, confusing people about how God made them and what gender he gave them at birth, and convincing wicked people that they should try to change that through mutilation and poisoning their bodies in order to achieve something that cannot be achieved. Killing and murdering children in the womb. And we have leaders who seem to think that this is not only okay, but should be promoted against our will as Bible-believing Christians, because we respect life. And we're the haters, according to them. We're dangerous. Today in America, even after what happened with the Uh, repeal of Roe versus Wade, one of the most dangerous places to be in our world is in the womb. So what is going on in our world? You could look at it and say, all is lost. This is horrible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's go back to what we started with. Remember, I've told you, we're going to study the book of Revelation. You're going to leave here encouraged. Understand something. Understand this truth. 
God is working all things together for your good because you're called according to his purposes. So as dark as things become, you can trust God. The world rulers are clearly influenced by fallen angels. We see that throughout the scriptures in Ezekiel, Isaiah, even Ephesians. Fallen angels seek to destroy Israel. That's their number one mission. But God's angels protect them. Have you ever stopped? I do this all the time. I stop and say, why does Iran want to destroy Israel? They just introduced a missile that they built. I'm talking about the government of Iran, not the Iranian people, the Persian people. Let me be clear. When I, when I speak of uh, China and the Communist Party, I'm talking about the wicked governments. When I talk about the United States, I'm talking about those who are wicked in our government. Please don't mistake what I'm saying as a slam or criticism of people or ethnic groups. But what I am saying is that the nation of Iran, ruled by very wicked people, put out a missile this week. And on the side of that missile, I saw a picture of it. There were Hebrew letters. And you know what those Hebrew letters said? Death to Israel. Why would a nation as advanced as Iran make that their mission to destroy Israel? Why wouldn't they take that money and spend it on their people or or developing a better economy? Why? What drives a group of people to do such a thing? I'm going to remind you what we learned in the book of Daniel. There's a prince of Persia. By the way, Iran is Persia. There is a prince of Persia. They don't have a king or a shah now, but they have ayatollahs. And clearly, based on their agenda, I can tell you the prince of Persia is today influencing them because they are being influenced to do the very thing that the devil and his angels want to do, that is destroy Israel. That's where the motivation comes from. It's not just hate for hate's sake. It's spiritual hate. It's something that the devil is doing through them. So I pray for Iran. I pray for the Persian people. As far as I've heard, there is a great revival spiritually taking place in this part of the world. You'll never hear about it. You'll never know about it, but God sees it. He knows it. Who knows? There may be more solid Bible-believing Christians underground in Iran than we could possibly imagine. So what's the point? Pray. Because you know what? That prince of Persia is still influencing nations today. But Michael, the archangel, is Israel's protector. And that's why they're still there. But when I saw that missile, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I see it, I see it. The prince of Persia, the devil and his angels. You know, some fallen angels have access to God's throne. I mean, Satan himself appeared before the throne of God in the book of Job. In 2 Chronicles, you see this sort of evil spirit or or this, this angel. You see Satan appear before the throne of God. So it's important to understand they haven't lost their place in heaven yet. In fact, Satan continues, we'll see this later on in this study, he continues to accuse us before God in heaven. We see that in Zechariah 3. We see that in Revelation 12 in this very chapter, which we'll read in a minute. So Satan has never really been in hell. What? Yeah. Why would he go there? Think it through. Hell is a place, Hades we call it, is a place of the dead. I mean, you've already made your choice. Why would the devil want to even be there? See, classical literature kind of teaches us, well, there's the devil in hell sitting on his throne, so happy to be there. As far as I can tell, scripturally, he's never been there. Why would he go there? 
He has a place in heaven to accuse us before the throne of God, and he influences people on the earth. Seems to me it would be a waste of time to be in hell. Satan and his angels are not strong enough to defy God's purpose or his will. Amen? You need to know that. Heaven is outside the space-time continuum, so when this actually happens is irrelevant. Then it happens, and when we experience the result of it is what we're talking about today. Like I said, they've probably been fighting since the rebellion itself. That seems to be, from Daniel 10, the indication. So there's war in heaven. And the dragon and his angels were hurled down to earth at this point in the future. We believe this takes place about three and a half years in, three and a half years before the end of that seven-year time period. And of course, the great dragon is the ancient serpent that deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. He's called the devil, which in Greek means the accuser, or Satan, which in Greek means the adversary. So those aren't his names. Those are descriptions of who he is. And he leads the whole world astray. Satan and his angels will fall from heaven, but they're going to retain their influence on earth, but they already have their influence on earth. It's not something new. They're just going to lose their place in heaven shortly before they're destroyed and and really put into prison, a prison called the bottomless pit, in the last days. Now, that hasn't happened yet. Clearly, it hasn't happened yet. Satan will ultimately experience four separate falling. He's going he's gonna to he's gonna have four separate falls, fallings, if you will. And the first was when he fell in Ezekiel 28 from being a glorified angel to being a profane creature of evil. That happened a long time ago. We don't even know when that happened. We know it happened. We know in Isaiah and in Ezekiel it talks about this having happened because by the time Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, he's called the serpent. So... We see in Revelation 12 that he's going to fall from having access to heaven to restriction on earth, but he's got two more falls coming to him. I've mentioned one already. From the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit or the abyss, where he'll be for a thousand years. Now, I would have given him a life sentence. I would not have given him any parole. But God, in his infinite wisdom, is going to allow him, after a thousand years, to leave that prison, and he'll be returned to the earth where... He will influence all sorts of people to rebel against God yet again. But again, that's God's will being acted out. But then, thankfully, in Revelation 20, he meets his end in the lake of fire with the beasts, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, the Antichrists in the book of Revelation, and all those that reject God for all eternity. So that's the good news. The bad news is we're not there yet. The good news, that day is coming. Amen? You know, Jesus actually testified in Luke's gospel in chapter 10. He testified that he saw Satan, saw, past tense, saw Satan fall from heaven. He says that to his disciples. And this is probably that moment when Satan fell from glorified to profane. Having fallen from being a glorified creation of God to being a profane, wicked, evil murderer and liar and destroyer, Jesus says, I saw him fall as lightning. Well, there's war in heaven, and that war spills over onto earth. But then John, and this is so encouraging, John heard a loud voice in heaven declare victory over Satan. We pick it up in verse 10. Then he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power 
and the kingdom of our God. The, and the authority of his Christ, that is the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Of course, the time will be short. It will only be three and a half years after he's cast out of heaven where he can wreak havoc on the earth, and he does. So much of God's wrath that's poured out on the earth is actually kind of coupled with the things that God will allow Satan and his angels to do to the people on the earth. It's partly God's wrath being poured out, but it's also partly him working through or allowing these individuals to destroy the lives of many who live on the earth in that day. But not God's people Israel. They're protected, as we'll see. So the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God had come to heaven in this moment. And the authority of Christ in heaven, soon to be on earth, because that Satan who constantly accused their brothers on earth has been hurled down. So right now, in heaven, if you will, as you and I seek to serve God and his son Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, the devil and perhaps many of his angels have a place to accuse us before the throne of God. And, you know, they don't even have to make stuff up. Have you noticed that? They could probably just talk about the week you had. That moment in traffic. That moment at work. The thoughts in your mind. The things you've done. The things you've thought about doing. The devil doesn't need to make stuff up. I'm sure he does. But if he just talks about the things we do or don't do, or want to do, he could accuse us. Would you agree? And he does. But aren't you glad that Jesus simply has to say, he's forgiven, she's forgiven, they're forgiven. And in that moment of forgiveness, Satan is defeated in heaven. And ultimately, he's going to be thrown out. That they and their brothers had overcome Satan and his accusations is one of the things that this chorus of loud voices in heaven makes clear. How did they overcome? By the way, this is overcoming the accusations of Satan. If I can sort of give that a title, I would. These are how, these are the ways that you and I, we overcome the accusations of Satan. Those accusations are there, they're real. We don't stand the chance before God in our own holiness and righteousness because we don't have any. But in Christ, this is what we know. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And that's Christ's finished work. And when you know that Christ finished the work on his cross, on the cross that he died on so many, many, many years ago, you know that you, in the finished work of Christ, can overcome the accusations of Satan by the blood of the Lamb. There requires no more sacrifice for sin. You're forgiven. You're forgiven in Christ. 
But they also overcome the accusations of Satan. We do as well by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. You know, that's what you say about the finished work of Christ. That's your faith in the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ saves all those that put their faith in the finished work of Christ. See, if you don't put your faith in the finished work of Christ, the salvation is there, but you reject it or don't believe in it or don't seek to be saved. So how do they overcome? Well, the way they actually overcome, the way we actually overcome the accusations of the devil is in the work of Christ finished on the cross. But our faith, the word of our testimony, our faith is what allows us to experience that forgiveness personally. And then what? Well, we learn there in that section in verse 11, by remaining faithful until death, we continue in Christ's finished work. So Christ's finished work, faith in Christ's finished work, and continuing in faith in Christ's finished work. And that's what it means when we read, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Willing to live for Christ, willing to die for Christ, and in the last days, that will be more likely than not the way that these individuals overcome Satan and his accusations. Martyrs overcome the accusations of Satan and his angels by giving their lives both to Christ and for Christ. Now, most of us, I imagine, living in this country at this time, will probably not have to give our lives in martyrdom. And I'm thankful for that. But many of our brothers and sisters today and through the centuries have and will. And in the last days, most, if not all, will overcome the accusations of Satan through the faith in the finished work of Christ, and proving it by giving their life for Christ. And those that dwell in heaven, they could rejoice at this time. Those who dwell on earth and the sea, uh, they, could, they really aren't going to rejoice because they're about to suffer Satan's fury. That's what the voices in heaven say. And Satan is furious because he knows God's plan, his timetable, and his word. He's finished. He doesn't stand a chance. Satan also knows his fate, but he's not persuaded from his rebellion. Think about that. He knows how this thing ends. He can read the Bible in the original language. So he absolutely knows what's about to happen. And yet, interestingly enough, he won't quit. He's still persistent in his rebellion. Ask this question. Why does Satan continue to rebel against God? Just stop and think it through logically. It makes no sense. I mean, here's what I do know. He is utterly depraved. He's probably insane, if angels can be insane. And he believes that he actually stands a chance. He may have deceived himself as the great deceiver into thinking that he has a chance to to, to destroy God and his angels. But we know he can't, amen? Amen. But, you know, that's a question I really can't answer. I I really can't answer the question, why does Satan continue to rebel against God? But here's a question you and I, we need to answer. Why would we continue to rebel against God? Why? That makes even less sense, doesn't it? Our rebellion against God makes less sense than Satan's rebellion against God. Brothers and sisters, I, I know many of you, most of you here, and I know you love God. And so this isn't for you. But if there's someone here today who still hasn't made a choice, 
See, I think most people, I'm not really into the NFL anymore, as you know, I've kind of given that up, but I think most people make a choice at some point when they're watching the game, right? They make a decision, well, I'm rooting for the green team, I'm rooting for the red team. There's a lot of people out there that haven't chosen a side in this war that's taking place in heaven that will ultimately take place on earth, is taking place on earth to a great deal, Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can rebel against God and succeed, because then you're going to sound like the devil. And we know where he ends up, and you'll end up there with him. That's what he wants. So, I said this last week, if you're thinking, oh, I'm Switzerland, I'm neutral, I'm kind of staying in the middle of this war, but I don't really want to pick a side. That's not a winning strategy. If you reject Christ, you will be rejected for all eternity. And your fate will be the same as the devil. But brothers and sisters, we deserve that fate, apart from Christ. In Christ, though, we have overcome the accusations of Satan, which are true. We've overcome our own sinful nature in Christ, and we can spend an eternity with him. Can I hear an amen? That's good news. That's good news. So why do we continue to rebel against God? I can't answer that question either. Back in last week's study... John received two signs. One was the dragon, and it was clear, and we see it here. That's Satan. And the other was of a woman who gave birth to a son. And I don't have time again to go over it here and now, but last week we unpacked this pretty clearly. The woman is Israel. And the son she gives birth to in this vision is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so we're going to be talking about those symbols again. They represent Israel, the dragon, Satan, the woman, Israel, And the child of the woman is Christ, the Messiah. Let's read in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, that is cast out of heaven, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. As I know you know those symbols, if you weren't here last week, you can interpret that very easily. The devil, Satan, in this vision, attacked Israel after... Satan and his angels have been hurled down to earth. That will happen in our future. And Satan hates Israel because Israel gave birth to Jesus, the Messiah, and he hates Jesus, he hates God. Satan wants to destroy them, that is Israel, in order to thwart God's promise for a millennial kingdom in Israel. He tried to destroy the plan of God to send Jesus to earth as a man. Didn't work. And and some people see the cross as the handiwork of Satan. And maybe it was. I tend to think it was really mankind. I don't think he needed much help in his fallen state, but the cross was actually the victory over Satan and his angels. Amen? Our salvation. Again, the finished work of Christ. But then the woman, we're told, was given the wings of a great eagle. Look at verses, well, just verse 14. That's enough. The woman was given... The two wings of a great eagle. And then this is a vision. They're symbols. So that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. We talked about this last week in verse 6 where it says the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she would be taken care of for 1,260 days. Sometimes referred to as three and a half years, 42 months, or a time, times, 
and half a time, three and a half years. So the, the time period, bless you, the time period is consistent, three and a half years. So there's no question about that. But the woman was given the wings of a great eagle. Now, God gave Israel, in this vision, the ability to fly or to flee to the place that he had prepared for them in the desert. And we don't know a lot about this, but we know something. We know that Jesus warned the Jews that they would be persecuted in the last days in Matthew 24. We know that. And in fact, that term, eagle's wings, you've heard it before. In Isaiah, you've heard it before in Exodus. It's emblematic of the Exodus and the time where God took his people out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness where for 40 years he protected them on eagle's wings. So it's not literally eagle's wings. It's that the way that God protected Israel for that time period, he's going to protect Israel again for three and a half years. Is God faithful? Can I hear an amen? He's going to save his people, the church, by delivering them from the earth, but he's going to protect his people, Israel, for three and a half years on the earth. God is able to do that. That much is very clear in the scriptures. So Israel, in this vision, fled to the desert where God would care for them and protect them from Satan. Jesus predicted that Israel would flee Judea in Matthew 24 as well. After something called the abomination of desolation, talked about by both Daniel and Jesus. What is the abomination of desolation? It's a time where the Antichrist in the last days, about three and a half years into this seven-year time period, is going to attack Israel and the two witnesses that we talked about in chapter 11. And he's going to take over the temple, which will have been rebuilt, in Jerusalem. And he's going to desecrate the temple, and the Jews will have to flee Jerusalem. So while the Jewish people are back in the land right now, gathered in unbelief, God is still working on their behalf. But a day will come where they'll be driven out of Israel, and they'll have to go into the wilderness. The implication seems to be that they're going to go into the area of Jordan, what is today modern-day Jordan, the desert. And as they go into the area of Jordan, God will protect them there. We don't know exactly how, but he will. And in the book of Daniel... We learn, and I believe this is in chapter 11, uh, verse 41, uh, that that area of the world is specifically identified by Daniel as being out of the reach of Antichrist. And here we are in Daniel, excuse me, Revelation 12, and we're learning that there's an area out of the serpent's reach. How? Why? I don't know. Politically, supernaturally, Israel will be preserved in the area that we believe is what well, used to be called Moab, Eden, and Ammon, but today it's called the nation of Jordan. And by the way, Jordan has a much friendlier relationship with Israel today than they had decades ago. So just interesting to see how things are working out. But we don't know. One of the things we do know is they may flee to a place that we're familiar with called the Rock City of Petra, maybe. It's south of the Dead Sea. It's in modern Jordan. It's talked about by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 16. This area of the world, again, will be safe. It'll be a safe zone for some reason, and Israel will be there for three and a half years. They'll flee to the desert as they fled in this vision for this time period of the tribulation, where they'll be cared for by God for a time, times, and half a time, and they will be kept out of Satan's reach, and God is able to do it. Amen? So, wow, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? That's an awful lot to take in. These are the things that are going to take place in the last days. But the, the real emphasis today, though, is on that war in heaven. 
Which side are you on? Well, the dragon is not going to give up easily. That isn't hard to imagine. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, again, a symbol, a picture, a sign, not necessarily something that's going to happen literally. In fact, it's not literal. It's symbolic. It's figurative. But it tells us that the devil's not going to give up. We already read in the previous verse that they're going to be out of the serpent's reach. But that doesn't mean he's not going to try. Do you know you are out of the serpent's reach? Do you know that? If you were to box someone with a long reach, you're kind of in trouble. One of the things that gives a boxer an advantage is his reach, her reach, the ability to hit your opponent. If your arm is even an inch longer than your opponent's, that's a tough fight, a very tough fight. In fact, in martial arts, one of the things we learn is how to increase our reach. Because, see, I got, I got small arms. I got little arms here, okay? But if I'm going up against someone with a much longer reach, I have to get in closer, and I have to be able to extend my reach. That is what Satan is constantly trying to do to us. But here's the truth. You have a shield around you. You are out of the reach of Satan. Amen? You need to know that. We, we talked about it last week. Greater is he that is in, in us than he that is in the world, right? So, does that mean Satan gave up on you? How was your week? Parents, how are your kids this week? How was it at work? Commuting? Maybe you had some health challenges. Life doesn't just go the way we want it to. Have you figured that out already? And the reason for that is simple. While you're out of Satan's reach, he still throws mean punches. And that's what's going to happen with Israel. Even though they're out of the serpent's reach, it's not going to end there. He's going to attempt to destroy Israel by sending in a flood. Could be a flood of troops, could be weaponry, we don't know. He's going to try. But the earth is going to protect Israel. By, by swallowing up Satan's attempt to destroy them. And you say, well, that sounds far-fetched. Well, have you read about the Exodus? I mean, there were times where the earth literally swallowed people up. God is going to do something amazing and supernatural in the last days to protect his people. I really think some of it will be political, but most of it will be supernatural. I mean, he could just put up a wall of fire that nobody could penetrate. I don't know. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know he will. Amen. The devil's not going to just give up. And the devil's not just going to give up on you because you came to Christ. In fact, I never really knew spiritual warfare in my life until I gave my life to Christ. One of the first things I experienced, it's kind of bizarre. Maybe you've experienced this as well. I never had dreams like this before I was a Christian. In my early 20s, I gave my life to Christ. And then I started having some crazy dreams. At first, I thought it was watching too many horror movies as a kid. But then I said, no, no, there's something something more to this than that. And I started to realize that the forces of wickedness can sometimes try to influence us 
while we're sleeping, or maybe when we're in that place when we're just sort of waking up. I've heard all types of testimonies from many of you and others throughout my years as a Christian. We're in that time of sleep or in that time of drowsiness. Bizarre things have happened. The devil is still trying to reach you. And if you've given your life to Christ, he figures you're on the clock. If he can keep you defeated and discouraged and not a threat to his kingdom, he's going to do it. And if you step up and say, as Pastor Frank did just a few weeks ago, that I'm going to live my life as a servant of Christ. Well, if you want to know more about that, just ask Frank what kind of week he had after he was ordained. Or any of us who've stepped up to teach a Sunday school class or serve in a ministry or go on a mission trip. How about you guys who've been on mission trips? You know something, right? You know something about satanic warfare, spiritual warfare. So you are outside of Satan's reach, but it doesn't mean you're not going to take a few punches. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It happens to use that language. So what happens next? Well, again, the devil's not going to give up. In verse 17, we learn that then the dragon was enraged at the woman, again, who is Israel, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. I'll explain that in a minute. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, of course the dragon was enraged in this vision at the woman and went to make war against the rest of her offspring. He will try to stop anyone who wants to serve God. And if he can't stop someone, he'll go after someone else. He's enraged because he can't destroy Israel. He's been trying, have you noticed? He's still trying. He will continue to try to thwart God's promises. And he's going to attack another group of Jews. We've talked about them before, back in chapter 7. They're called the 144,000 sealed servants of God from all the tribes of Israel. If you were with us, you remember that study. We'll talk about them again in chapter 14. These Jews, we're told, were sealed by God and will no doubt cause many problems for Satan. God will work through them and use them. They're likely among the fellow servants of the martyrs that are mentioned in chapter 6, verse 11. The martyrs under the throne cry out to God, How long, O Lord? They're looking for vengeance, and they say, basically, you you need to hang in there until your fellow servants, who will also be martyred, your fellow servants, join you. The 144,000 are among the fellow servants. And we later see them in heaven, in chapter 14, in heaven with Jesus, praising God as redeemed from the earth. So they're going to give their lives. They're going to be martyred. Well, most of Israel will be preserved for three and a half years, true Israel. The 144,000 will not be with them. They will be apparently in the earth preaching the gospel or reaching out and, and defying Satan and his kingdom. But it will cost them their lives, clearly. So, these are Messianic Jews, this 144,000. We're told that because they obey God's law and they also hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's, that's sort of an odd combination, but it's laid out for us there in verse 17, latter part. What does it say? They obey God's law. And you say, well, I obey God's law. Yeah, but that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the law of Moses. They obey God's law, and they also hold to the testimony of Jesus. This would be a true messianic Jew. In fact, there are some today we describe as messianic Jews. 
If someone's Jewish and they've given their life to Christ, I suppose it's appropriate to describe them in that way. But really, the correct description of a Messianic Jew is one who is continuing to really be Jewish and live according to God's law and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's kind of like you're, you're Jewish and you follow Judaism, but you know that the Messiah has come. That's probably the best description I can give you. Satan will also attack the Gentiles at that time period that come out of the great tribulation of the earth. We see them in heaven as well. So this is going to be a war for those last three and a half years on earth, like the war that takes place even today in heaven. And I have a quote for you regarding martyrdom and what Satan tries to do to saints on earth. It's this, it is precisely when Satan has lost the battle for the souls of saints in heaven that he begins the fruitless persecution of their bodies. So yeah, Satan can land a few punches, but he can't touch your soul. He can't touch your spirit. You are out of the reach of Satan because you are in Christ. Don't expect everything to go perfectly just because you're a Christian. Satan will make sure that that is not the case. Finally, First part, chapter 13, sort of a preview for next week's study. We read, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And the dragon, who is Satan, stood on the shore of the sea. And the sea is a symbol of the peoples of the earth. And where we leave our study today, we see Satan waiting for his master plan for the earth and the sea to unfold. Waiting, just about to happen. Now, this will happen in the future. We're going to read what will happen in the next two weeks in our studies in Revelation 13. John is about to see a vision of a beast coming out of the sea. And then he's about to see a vision of a beast coming out of the earth. And so there you have Satan, as it says, standing on the shore of the sea, which means he's on the earth looking at the sea. And the next things that we study about have to do with the symbols of the earth and the sea. There are dark days coming on the earth. I'm sure you understand that by now. There are dark days on the earth today. We're living in a world of darkness, and as I've said already, there is a war to be waged. The only question remains for us is which side are we on? Have you made a choice? Have you made a decision for Jesus Christ? Because we've already learned that The devil and his angels, the the forces of darkness, are defeated in, as we've learned, three ways. I'm going to read them again because I think it's important to be reminded. Notice, we're told that the saints in heaven overcame the devil and his angels by the blood of the Lamb. Now, Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. He died. He was buried in a tomb. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. We'll be celebrating that. You've got to give me a little bit more amen. Amen? Amen. What we do know, and we'll be celebrating in a few weeks, is that his victory over death guarantees our victory over death for all eternity. But in the moment we're in right now, something else happened. He He ascended into heaven, where the scripture tells us he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf in the book of Hebrews. What? Yeah. So two things are happening right now at the throne of God concerning you, concerning me. The accuser 
is saying all manner of evil against you, most of which is true. And Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. Yeah, there's a battle. It's the battle for your soul. It's the battle of eternity. And you can make a choice today and ensure your victory for all eternity in Christ. But notice it goes on to say the word of their testimony. So when you acknowledge that truth of the gospel that I've just shared, now you have a testimony. You have the ability to say, Christ died for me. So you can say Christ died, but you can't say Christ died for me on the cross until you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. To as many as received him, to those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And finally, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now that can be interpreted a number of ways. It might be giving your life on the mission field or giving your life for Christ in ministry or just getting up every day and dying daily and carrying your cross for Christ and being willing to make the sacrifices that come with being a Christian in this dark and desperate world. You know, those in the scriptures that, in the book of Acts, that suffered for being Christians, oh, they rejoiced that they were worthy enough to suffer for the name of Christ. They rejoiced that they were given the opportunity not to love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So as the kids come in, and as we prepare our hearts to close this service, this is a very important moment. We've talked about some interesting things. But the most important thing is this. Have you picked a side? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we now come before you. And for many of us, we acknowledge a choice we've made many, many, many years ago. And we're so grateful, Lord, for those of us who are saved and and hold to your testimony and have lived our lives for you. Oh, maybe imperfectly, but we've lived our lives for you. Oh, Lord God, we cry out even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for these things. As dark as they seem, we long for the day when the time of the end comes and then the time of wrath and then the time of rejoicing for a thousand years as you rule and reign on the earth. Maranatha. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we rejoice in. This is the hope, the blessed hope of your appearing. But there are some here who either haven't made a choice or have made a choice to reject you and your ways and hold their hearts back from you. And I pray right now for each and every person here that can be described in that way, that they wouldn't feel any pressure, not at all, but they would long to spend an eternity with you and acknowledge that you died on the cross for their sins, you rose again on the third day, and that you do intercede and pray for them before the throne of God in heaven and that you are coming again to judge the living and the dead and that they'll be judged righteous in Christ never being held accountable for their many sins because they are forgiven and redeemed. Lord God, for every heart here that needs to make that decision today, may you have that Holy Spirit conversation with them that they might respond to you and give their hearts to you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.